Hello friends, welcome to another episode of the Wild User Interviews Podcast with me, ABB. It's produced by Silicon Craftsman, the Product and User Experience Guild at NIR. I'm extremely excited today to have Corin Corwin Harrell. Oh, Corin Corwin Harrell. Mate, you're not making it easy for me. <laughs> Sorry, you get three tries. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll be editing all of them or maybe I'll leave some in front of The second one was, was like 98% there. <laughs> yeah, I should have practiced that beforehand. But yeah, he's an absolute legend. He's one of those unique gems that brings in a lot of experience on the product side and the blockchain side. So he's currently working with the near core team on the product and design side. We'll get a few more details on that in a minute. But he also brings a lot of valuable experience from Consensus. So we'll be unpacking all of that. Welcome, Corwin. Thank you so much. Apologies for not being able to pronounce your name. It's okay. I imagine it comes from your South American background and being used to rolling your R's. 100%. Yeah, there's actually a few <laughs> interesting phonetics there that I struggle with, like the R's. I struggle not only because in South America we roll our R's, but in Australia we skip them. It's like a pirate sound. There you go. <laughs> so the hybrid sometimes just like messes up with my mind. I'm not sure which one I'm meant to be going. <laughs> So you're just confused all the time when you're talking. <laughs> yeah, basically. And I'll tell you another one. In Spanish, there's like this, I don't know, like grammatical rule where you never have an N before a P or a B. So basically, Canberra, as yeah. it is spelled in English, N-B, it's it, like error, you know, malfunction in Spanish. So in Spanish, it's M-B, Canberra. So anyway, there's a few things that I also read and I'm never sure whether I'm making the mistake or my brain hasn't made the switch between languages. It is a- it's funny how much of a challenge that is. I, I grew up in East Africa and the language spoken where I lived was Swahili and all of the vowels are long, like no exceptions. And so it's always it was always funny to hear people coming over from wherever it might have been, the States or the UK or wherever, and they just couldn't do it. They just couldn't. Like it was A-E-I, not A-A-A-O. <laughs> ah, right? interesting. <laughs> Yeah, that's so. an interesting uh, distinction. My mother's hobby has always been bonsai, the little Japanese trees. Mm-hmm. And at some point, some of her bonsai friends started learning Japanese, which I thought would be really hard. But apparently, compared to some other Asian languages, it is very easy. It is much easier, especially if you speak Spanish, because the pronunciation of the vowels is very similar. You're like a o e e. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that was a very interesting segue, which takes us exactly where I wanted to start. So you grew up in East Africa. At the moment, you're living in Houston? I'm living in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Asheville, North Carolina. Yes. CT added to my next digital nomad trip. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you're always welcome. It sounds amazing. Um, I think we actually have one of the near contributors in Nashville for sure. He's doing a lot of work in the NFT music space. Oh, so it's Asheville, not Nashville. No N. But I do have a brother who lives in Nashville, and Nashville is only, I don't know, seven hours away. But Asheville well, is actually east of Nashville. Short drive. The good news are I'm not making your job very again, easy. <laughs> if I make that mistake again and I land in the wrong city, at least I'll be able to meet with one of the Harold family members. There you go. It, see, it doesn't matter where you go. You'll, you're, all, you're most of the way there. That's amazing. <laughs> You'll get one of us. 
hopefully he is as amazing as you. Um, and I think that leads <laughs> us to the big introduction. Would you be able to tell me what you're doing now for Near, And then we'll start unpacking from East Africa till now. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, a lead product designer at Near. Right now, my current focus is on the Near wallet. I have up until very recently been distributing my focus across a number of different projects and, and different things at Near. So I haven't been exclusively focused on the Near wallet product since I've been around, which has been a little over a year at this point. But yeah, I guess I joined the team in January of last year and I was the second designer. The first designer, Jake, is a really talented brand designer and brand strategist, but they didn't have anybody on board who was more um, product focused. And so that was why I came along and since then have been working on this and that. But most recently, we've actually grown our team of two to a team of three, a uh, team of four, but one of them is actually moving on to a different project. And so now I'm narrowing my focus and I'll be focusing pretty exclusively on designing and building the Near wallet. And yeah, it's been fun. The Near is extremely early and even in comparison to how early the entire blockchain space is, Near is even earlier compared to some of the other that have been around for a while. And so it's just, yeah, it's just interesting. All of the products are in their infancy and have yet to breach that that or have only most recently breached that sort of MVP stage and are seeing really rapid development and iteration and adoption and, and things. So it's really exciting. Um, it never slows down. It's amazing. Like I, I love it because there's so much to unpack there. I guess the first thing, credit where credit is due. Thanks for much for your work on the wallet team. I don't know how active you've been involved up until now, but I'd say that as a first point of contact of people coming into the near ecosystem, from my experience and of being spending a lot of time in the community, I think it would be fair to say that it goes above people's expectations. It delights and impresses. It is very simple, easy to understand. There's a flow to it. And even the improvements that we've seen recently with the token transfers and adding the, the dollar value, like it is a very good touch point. And even for people that may not be very active in the ecosystem, that may be the only thing that they use. <laughs> so mm, I think that it makes yeah. sense to tackle that first and get that right first. So yeah, thank you. Also, thank well, you. Thank I'll, I'll share that, that sentiment with the other, the other guys on the team. I love it. I feel like I'm playing 4D chess because I speak with Mike Purvis and he tells things to you and then I speak with you and you relay things to the team. It's, <laughs> a, it's interesting being an outside operator as I float around uh, which mm -hmm. was going to lead me to my next point. Thanks so much for being so welcoming and so helpful. So I 100% share your sentiment of it is so early that there is a lot to be done. So when the opportunity yeah. was presented to me to start a guild, I immediately thought of product and user experience, not just because that is the area that I've been diving into for the last few years and that I'm really passionate about, but because I saw that massive area of opportunity of trying to understand where we are in like the, the cycle, in, in the grand scheme of things. So I see these galactic brains solving big problems at the technical layer. And as those start to be ironed out, then we need more people with product thinking to come on top. So basically the way that I would define that product way of operating is 
we're going to be using a set of tools that already exists. We've got a, I wouldn't say unlimited, but we've got a very large number of possibilities within these existing framework and tools. We're not going to be reinventing the wheel at the technology level, but we do have to make a lot of conscious decisions about how that technology is deployed to be able to create an application that you know solves some problems if you want to make use product speak or makes money if you want to use business speak or DGen speak <laughs> if you want to use normie speak an application that does something <laughs> yeah. why does it exist so i got really excited uh, product and user experience guild would be the community driven initiative and i love that linking with the near core team because at first, I was a little bit nervous that it would be seen as some sort of like competition or cannibalizing or like a criticism that you guys aren't doing enough. But I think that no one really saw it that way. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that we all see it as there's so much to be done that the more people that we can get thinking this way, uh, the better. Yeah, thank you for yeah, our yeah, initial totally. catch-up call, uh, inviting me to some of the internal near-core sure, yeah. calls. Even if I missed it because of the time zone. <laughs> no, it's all good. No, at this point, we're the, the near core team is doing their best to integrate with the community and all of the different projects that are happening. So there really is no division <clears throat> between the things that are going on that we're working on and the things that are going on that the community is working on, other than the, the, the near wallet team has near wallet problems. And not everyone needs to hear what the near wallet problems are all the time, because it's just a lot of noise. And there's already a lot of noise out there. So it's yeah. And I think that the unique challenges and opportunities to me of this early stage is that you have the unique wallet problems, but then you also have the intersection between all of the problems. <laughs> yeah. So I think that a recent example that we had recently with the ref token sale people were, were sending assets over the bridge. So we had a bridge issues and then some assets were not showing up on the wallet. So we had wallet issues. And then there were issues on the ref side, which would be an external product issue. And then I found out after the fact there were indexer issues. Interesting to, I guess that it is at the very core of product thinking to be at the intersection of all those working groups. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I think that it speaks to the nature of this kind of decentralized ecosystem or, or our attempt our attempt to be decentralized is that there's no single point of failure, which is a good thing and a bad thing. When you can own every, when you own everything and you build everything yourself for yourself and you decide how something works and maybe you have several products that share certain pieces of infrastructure and whatever, then, you know, it's just easier to control. It's easier to make more, you know, educated guesses about what could go wrong. So when everything is in pieces and controlled by different people and built by different teams with different standards and using different pieces of infrastructure, then it's, there's a lot, there's a lot that could go wrong. So it's actually a, a quite a feat. <laughs> I love it that you're bringing this up because this is one of the areas of focus that I've identified. So basically from my perspective, one of my big challenges now is, okay, so how do we attract more talent to the ecosystem? So I'm working on some initiatives and some outreach to get more product and design people and creative thinkers into the space, including this podcast, which we hope will reach the masses as entertainment. <laughs> Maybe there's some insight <laughs> hidden somewhere in there, but also one of the challenges, and, and I'm getting more information on this as we get closer to the hackathon coming up, is 
people trying to navigate that web of you know, interrelatedness with projects. So as you said, if somebody going to the hackathon and wanting to build their own project would not be a self-contained unit, but they would be sitting on and integrating with other pieces of the stack. So I think that is something that is potentially different, well, definitely different from the traditional world, but I also wonder what would be the best way to illustrate how those things integrate and if there's anything that we could do from a product framework to better understand uh, the possibilities so we can maximize them and the risks so we can minimize them yeah that's a really interesting question yeah even i and i'm sure lots of others just get overwhelmed at how many different projects there are and their goals and intent and their current state and that's even that's tenfold with tools that are built for developers. And yeah, a lot of it comes down to when you're thinking about how easy is it for people participating in hackathons, for example, to use these things that, you know, just comes down to has the team done their due diligence to create good documentation, give good examples, some really a solid initial learning paths, and then also doing the work to make sure to expose other relevant projects or tools that could assist someone looking to build. And so it's a matter of building the foundation to make someone to make it easy for someone to use your thing. And then also, if you can't do everything, making sure to shed a light on what are some like viable pathways for developers, for example, to navigate to get to where they're trying to go and exposing other projects. And hopefully those projects are doing the same thing. So you're, there's a lot of dependency on others, <laughs> which that's yeah. a good thing. No, it's good. But it's no, difficult. I, I agree with you. I think that there is certainly that extra layer of work involved in the preparation for the project and doing your research and due diligence. And I guess the training on the tools or the specific environment. And then there is a post work of you know, documenting everything and making it available for people and getting it known. I think mm -hmm. that on both ends of the spectrum, there is a huge community component. So I yeah. guess that I reflect the onus back on us to think of the best ways to make that onboarding and transition as seamless as possible. But this leads quite nicely to where I wanted to go back to, which is if there is, say, a hurdle where people have to actively opt into being in the blockchain ecosystem to build decentralized products, what kind of people would we be looking at? Or I guess what I'm trying to get at is you and I choose to spend most of our time working in this environment. We were actually attracted to this several years ago, which I'm inclined to think was either visionary from a technology perspective or there's more of an ideology behind what blockchain starts. So yeah, I'd like to get more into the human level to understand what has made Corwin and I guess myself, because this is a conversation, <laughs> um, go into this space and yeah, hopefully try to unpack how to attract others that may have similar yeah. experiences or be of inspiration to others that may be going through similar journeys at different stages. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Sounds fun. <laughs> so the year is 1985, East Africa. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's before I was around. But yeah, I my grandparents, a lot of people ask me, you don't have an accent and you're also white. So 
how did you end up in, in East Africa? Which is a little bit of an ignorant question, but I do get it a lot. But to tell this, that story very briefly, my, my grandparents were very traditional. When you say the word missionary, if you have a stereotype that comes to mind, that's what they were. <laughs> so they got on a boat at some point in their life and rode the boat several weeks around through the Mediterranean to the east coast of, of Kenya. And then they that's where they lived for the rest of their lives. And my family never left and my parents met there and me and all my siblings grew up there. So that's the story. It's not particularly, I, I don't know, it is interesting, but yeah, <laughs> I do think it's interesting, and I'll tell you why. Because I'm always confused at how we have different standards for migration and what it is to become a local, depending on which direction you're going to. Because what I find fascinating about the story is that, for whatever reason, and for your grandparents, it was as missionaries. You find yourself in a country, and once you're there, you presumably connect with the local communities, start making life there. You have your children there, you have your grandchildren there, and you stay. So I think that yeah. it's it's very interesting to see how you know cultures can communicate, collaborate, and how everyone has the freedom to integrate into you know a different country or a different culture. I also think it is hilarious and mildly offensive when people say things like, "Oh, you don't have an accent for a South American," or "Aren't all I, South?" I have gotten the classic Mean Girls question: "Why are you white?" I, I do get that quite often, actually. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's crazy because once again, you know. <clears throat> I guess in, in that direction, people feel it is okay to ask when you would never yeah. ask a black person from Europe, or oh, why are you a certain color in a certain region? You would never do that. So I think that the smaller the communities, maybe the less interactions people have had, and they ask wild questions. Like as a Venezuelan in Australia, and there aren't many of us in Venezuela is going through some turmoil, I've had some wild questions asked. And I think they're hilarious. I don't get offended because I know that it's not coming from a bad place, but there's yeah. certainly a big gap of knowledge. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it just comes down to just a lack of an intimate awareness of just that there are so many possibilities for how people can end up in different places across the world. And it's unlimited, really. And there is no, there really is no normal. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think. That and if we do this historical connection, if we travel across in time and space, that is another aspect that I find fascinating because most people, when they migrated back in the day, and you, you know, said it quite nicely, you get on a boat for a long period of time, yeah. and I'm sure that the trip was not nice at all, and then you get there. And if you think about it, they didn't have Google or anything back in the day, so you're going to a place not having seen a picture. You may have yeah. never interacted with anyone that lives there and have had that experience. So I think it says a lot about human like grit and ambition and perseverance. And if we put that in today's context, I'm like, if we've made it so easy to travel nowadays, you can get on a plane to anywhere. I'm in Australia, 20 plus hours, but still you can get here. It's historically the cheapest it's ever been. Qantas is really quite nice you know, when the international borders are open, then once again, I always reflected back on myself, and I guess I would encourage people to ask of themselves, if you could be anywhere in the world where you can be the best version of yourself, where would you be? Are you settling for being comfortable? And why aren't you, you are? there right now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and it's funny yeah. that the question goes all the way back in circles, because now we've got the digital sphere, and it's the exact same. I ask people, like, if now you can be the best version of yourself from anywhere in the world, like you don't even have to relocate, 
Are you putting yourself in the corners of the internet that allow you to grow as a person? Yeah. Yeah. It's super fascinating. And I think that's what's so exciting about working in, in crypto is it just, there's just this quality, this vibe, this, I don't know, vibe is probably the best word that there's just like unlimited potential and unlimited possibilities. And if you have an idea, chances are it hasn't been done yet. And so it's entirely feasible and for you to go ahead and just go for it. You can't say the same thing for the rest of the tech industry because a lot of problems have been solved and there are a lot of, this is the way you do this, or this is the way you solve this problem with what, you know, that sort of environment offers. And so now crypto and, and blockchain is this entirely new environment. It's a, this entirely new, I don't know, set of materials to craft things with. And, and we have not scratched the surface and that's very exciting. And very empowering. And so that's why it's so hard, I think, for that's the rabbit hole. Once you go down the rabbit hole, it's hard not to just go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing inside of crypto, because there's just so many, there's so many possibilities. So why would you ever go back to a state where everything has already been figured out? <laughs> and I think that it is fascinating to see these like Cambrian explosion of innovation possibilities especially for people in the West. But my perception is that, yes, technology evolved very quickly and we basically solved all problems seemingly to the point where we started creating applications for food delivery for dogs. And, right. you know, there's a bunch of companies that would not have existed outside of San Francisco because they went up the stack of needs and technological innovation right. and overfunding these projects in a very contained space. But I always said that the real gap between the developing and the developed world was going to be technology. Because I go back to Venezuela and people don't even have smartphones that are able to run applications today. Yeah. So that's the standard, actually. Yeah. And that's, that's the why standard of, crypto is of the so world standard. Because <laughs> it not only empowers people to build a certain type of applications and tools, decentralization solves a lot of local problems because there are problems inherent with corruption and whatnot. But also crypto solves the funding side of things. So we're actually starting to see a decoupling of geography and capital. So yeah, yeah it's interesting to see so many teams from so many places take different approaches to things. And I guess the caveat there is it hasn't happened much until now. That's not a failure of decentralization in these regions. I think that's a failure of the former tech stacks and them being too expensive. I've been very vocal on Twitter about Ethereum pricing out the communities that could really benefit the most. And I see Nier growing very fast. In LATAM, I'm involved with Nier Hispano. In Africa, we're opening a, a city hub in Nairobi. We are growing very fast. In Eastern Europe, very engaged. That's where I was born, by the way. Nairobi? In Nairobi, yeah. Nice. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, so I actually just before our chat, I reached out to someone in our Discord who is from Nairobi and I noticed they were... Pretty Kevin? active. I want to say Celestine. Celestine. But if there's another one, let me put me in touch. Shout out to Kevin. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyways, that always makes my ears perk up when I hear I see someone's avatar and it says like Nairobi from Nairobi. I just yeah, I totally agree. There are just like so many there's so many opportunities that are just not being even considered in those parts of the world right now. Because the people who have the resources to 
be building within this uh, you know ecosystem are they're privileged, but that will change very quickly. And you know we're seeing that happen every day. Uh, but yeah, and one of the, some of the most interesting problems to me are like how do you use or how how do you make this technology and its unlimited, seemingly unlimited potential accessible in parts of the world where having a smartphone is just not a thing or having a laptop is not a thing. Does it make sense? Are there opportunities to leverage it in ways that we're not thinking of right now because we take those things for granted and we we consider them as that's our starting point is that I have a smartphone, I have access to the web, I have a computer. That's not the starting point of most people. And so then what do you do? What what problems do you solve in those kinds of communities? Because they're definitely I know, not. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean when you say that you're perks up because I'm the same with Venezuela. I've actually, I personally reached out to a few friends in Venezuela that I knew were active in the crypto space and I connected them with the nearest Hispano. And now the community in Venezuela is growing very strong because what we have to understand about these communities is that their pain points are very strong. The Peter Thiel quote, something has to be 10 times better. Something only has to be 10 times better if you have no need to change something. But when your pain point is really strong, your tolerance for risk, your tolerance for trying out new products and for getting involved building them is actually you know, greatly increased. You're willing to get your hands dirty. What I find really interesting, to just your second point of the challenges of distribution, is that I think this is where crypto becomes revolutionary because crypto goes from being a gadget on an app that you use, say at, at the end user level. If you own a smartphone, you get to play my game. You take yeah. a step back. And I think that crypto has the potential to address at a broader systems level. Why are people in that region not able to afford a smartphone? Why is there not the basic infrastructure? And I think that we may start to see shifts in that sense, more economic growth in the region that enables people to access more technology, to enable more economic growth, different mm -hmm. ways of people grouping together to solve problems, could be some political organizations through DAOs, could be anything. But yeah, it's interesting that crypto enables that kind of cooperation at a higher level. Yeah, it is interesting. And I think what's even more interesting is that in those parts of the world, there are solutions that exist that are extremely prevalent that attempt to solve the problems that crypto is attempting to solve, but because they don't have access to the same resources or technology that people in the West do, they're solving them in different ways. So for example, in East Africa, M-Pesa is, it's the way that the ordinary person exchanges money. Why? Because someone who lives in an extremely remote part of the country can't go to a city that has a bank and sign up for a bank account because they need identification and they probably don't have that. They probably never have. And so it's like that even access to something like banking which is we would consider as, oh, it's just a, a thing that everybody has access to. And it, everyone talks about how banking sucks and how we can like we can disrupt it and whatever, which is fine. But what is there to disrupt if people have never even had an experience with that in the first place? And how do you, what about their problems? And so that's why things like M-Pesa are incredibly inspiring to me because it's like, it's an example of people using what they do have to 
access the things that they need. Being able to go with my Nokia phone that cost me seven dollars or whatever and get a scratch card from somewhere really Excellent remote loaded up yeah exactly Nokia loaded up to my phone <laughs> loaded up to my phone type in some a string of digits and send it to the phone that my friend has across the country and they can go to somewhere really remote and get paid in cash for exchanging that credit it's whoa that's crazy. That's that kind of sounds like crypto, <laughs> but it's not, <laughs> right? It's like peer to peer transaction, instant transaction of value without the need for being a part of banking systems. It does require intermediaries, which is like the cell the cell providers, but it's still incredible. Oh, it is fascinating, and I think that that has to be one of the basic assumptions that we have to work with. We don't have the knowledge or the time or the tools to be able to solve local problems everywhere in the world. And I think that these big tech giants, they've been able to expand and to have a lot of influence by taking what they already have. And yeah, the local ecosystem adapts to them in some ways. And then we're starting to see some distortions there because the way that the tool works in one place may have a different effect in other places. It is challenging. So I think that, yeah, it, it is interesting to see these local solutions. I, th- I think that for me, the paradigm shift is it's the distinction between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. Most things are not like, well, actually, that's not true, but some things are pretty tragic. But I think that most people learn to live with things. But we, we, we get a workaround. You can work you can walk one mile to catch the same rickety train and you get to work in two hours. But it's acknowledging that even though there may be a way of doing things now and it may feel like technology, there is always a way to improve. Mm-hmm. And once again, it's acknowledging that not everyone may have the vision or the time or the resources to do that improvement, but that we should do as much as we can to find these people and making sure that we can empower them so they can do the improvement because especially in terms of technology the improvement is often not incremental but exponential so that's where i see a big role for crypto and the reach out in these communities we amplify the message of what can be done and then try to leverage people's creativity and problem solving yeah i also i think that's true i also think that just a huge factor Uh, in all of this is meeting people where they are. I'm not going to oust this person, but I was observing some Twitter. But I will. (laughs) (laughs) I was observing a Twitter thread and some, they said something along the lines of imagine how incredible it would be to set up a mining rig or a proof of like a validator in some remote village in the Sahara. And you could, the entire community would basically have this additional source of income. Sure. But that's very intrusive and doesn't take advantage of the things that this community would have already been using every day and, or trying to accomplish each and every day. In other words, it's not, it's a very like, kind of messianic solution or like type of like perspective to think that I can just bring this thing that we've created that's that is incredible and can make passive income and just drop it here 
and leave it and expect it to make a big difference. When in reality, it's, I don't think that's really how things work. You're not considering what kind of impact that has on the community and who owns, who sort of, who owns that and how does that get governed and how does it, how is it ensured that those resources get distributed fairly, especially in communities where it has never existed before, right? Those are huge problems. Oh, and it's ginormous. so, yeah. <laughs> I, I can tell you a parallel, not, you know, one-to-one, but in Venezuela, we often refer to oil as a black curse because yeah. once we found it, a natural resource, extremely valuable, all you have to do is dig it out of the ground. Government state company, Venezuela was a founder of the OPEC. We had so much money, it actually turned into a curse. It led to incredible government corruption because then it became a race to see who gets to pay, play with a piggy bank. And we didn't develop other industries. And then mm. there was a lot of resentment and entitlement because that is our oil money and how is it distributed. And there was always someone smarter than someone else yep. stealing basically. And to be honest, I think that to this day, it's a challenge we reconcile with. The last... One of the coups that we had was in 1989 or 1992. Look, I don't, I'm not a history professor. You, you can look up the dates if you really want to get yeah, granular. I mean, that's not that long ago. <laughs> not that long ago at all. And the whole commotion was because they were trying to increase the price of oil because oil was subsidized. Because the oil belonged to the people. We didn't pay anything for it. And it was costing the state a lot of money. So they said, look, we should just pay what it is worth riots the government went down obviously there was a lot of other social unrest happening this was like the mm, yeah the spark that set the fire going only recently like i'm talking like in the last two years they started to incrementally i guess reflect the true cost of petrol when you put it in your vehicle mm. and once again even that is an example of epic policy failure because the people that were advocating to normalize the price of petrol were saying, look, you have to understand, this is costing the state billions to subsidize people that own an SUV and drive around in a petrol guzzler. The people that catch public transport are not getting any benefit from it. You could put those billions into other modes of transport and modernize infrastructure and you benefit more people in the way that it is meant to be intended. So yeah, the dropping of a magical resource that makes everyone rich can have devastating effects. So if the local community finds a way to get organized and they want to do it, I would 100% support them. But yeah, I agree with you. It is very challenging to come in as an outsider and just drop something. Yeah, yeah. And what you've just described, it's interesting just to hear what you describe as something that we're experiencing in crypto right now, right? It's like people flock to where the money is and that's a curse. And when there's so much potential for blockchain to offer practical utility and, but that's not what's going to make money right now. And so a lot of the attention and a lot of the hype in crypto is just focused on these things. It's how can we make as much money as we can, as fast as we can. And those are just not interesting problems to me. I think 
we're squandering our talents when we're not think trying to think of ways to leverage these things that we're learning about and learning how to use in a little bit more pragmatic ways. I agree. But if we were to put on a sort of like user research, like trying to understand where are these people coming from? Because if we think about us as particle developers and trying to grow an ecosystem, this is, I wouldn't say all our users because we are trying to get real people that just use the product, but these are a large component of the community. So where are these people yep. coming from? I can understand that if you live in an unstable country where you earn not much by working very hard and you have inflation and whatever, you would have a thirst. You would be almost desperate to try yeah, to yeah. accumulate as much money as you want if there's an opportunity. So yeah. if you're flipping NFTs or going into shit sure, coins or whatever sure. it is you're doing, I can see that. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think that that is a challenge for us because, once again, it's about – defining your metrics basically it is possible to get a lot of short-term growth and a lot of users mm -hmm. if you put incentives there but is that the progress that you need right now that's why i like the near ecosystem and look the marketing and everything really can be improved but i think that we're building a tech stack that will enable people to build real products if they choose to do and from our end like the user experience is just excellent even if technically it is the same as other l1s I, I fell in love with the user experience and that's where I'm, where I'm at now. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I should have made a distinction between obviously any time, any technology that creates an opportunity for someone with less to achieve more is, it doesn't matter if it's flipping NFTs or deep yield farming or whatever. That's great. If someone can come in and they haven't been able to find opportunities to, to reap the rewards of in the context of other systems and they can in this one then that's awesome and it's great that we can that you know this this system can offer that but there's a distinction between that and then the projects whose you know like sole intent is just to follow the the current and to take advantage and that's what i was mostly referring to yes i agree i think that is a huge distinction to make especially for our listeners who hopefully will be joining us in the ecosystem building stuff Within the ecosystem of builders, there are also many different categories. There's people building core infrastructure, galactic brain. It makes, it, it, it's the tracks that trains will run on. And then there's people building the train yeah. and people planning out different routes for the train. Yes, and people 100%. selling snacks on the train and people <laughs> jumping on the train with guns, ripping everyone off. There there's something go. for everyone there. Um, yep. We'd probably be on the <laughs> earlier stages of building nicer, tangible things. But yeah. yeah, be careful as you interact with people and obviously be honest of where you want to be as well. If you are yeah. on the quick money side, maybe align yourself with those pro projects to avoid conflicts, unnecessary conflicts. Now, <laughs> there's two big themes here that I really want to dive into. And I think they may get us along into that timeline mode again. The first one would be to unpack a little bit the components of the shift from tech being a bit more like elitist to tech being so open-ended and accessible everywhere in the world. So to me, I forgot what the second one was. <laughs> no worries. It will come back to me. The, 
to me, some of the components in that category are around you have well, people having to go to university beforehand and it being more expensive, even the admission process might have been exclusionary. When you look at technological training, it was 100% not even across the world, like even within the United States. Universities were years ahead of others in terms of equipment and people training. So I think that there's a big shift between the people that were able to access that education and several decades later, they probably own a large chunk of the pie, but at the same time, so much of that knowledge and information and pathways are available online for free. Like mm-hmm. so many of the people who come across in the ecosystem actively contributing and building stuff are self-taught. Mm-hmm. And we're creating our own pathways for people to immerse themselves in near, which is, I think, completely free. If I'm not mistaken, I think they actually get paid for it in, in, in some sense. Are you referring to like percentages from smart contracts or what are you the the near learn program there's some rewards after you complete each task yeah 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 so we're talking about the transition between formal education a bit more structured i guess just more barriers to access and it not being as visible to people the opportunities and the pathways to it being like wide open today. You can study the same courses that people do at Harvard for free online. So yeah, I'm just really interested to hear what your um, educational background is and how your journey was into tech. Okay. Yeah, sure. So I actually have have the most boring (laughs) pathway. I guess like it's pretty idealistic and I'm very fortunate. But yeah, I went to school for graphic design and started dabbling in like web design and programming in school. And then after school, I was like extremely fortunate to have been able to work with a company um, called ThoughtBot, which is a software consultant whom their business model is very much centered around the like design sprint modeled after the Google Ventures design sprint, but they have their own flavor. But yeah, basically, oh yeah, there you go. (laughs) So yeah, that was actually really my, what sort of kickstarted my career in design was just like being able to be a part of a very like process oriented strategy for design around design and seeing how effective it was. It was something that we, there was a very like well-defined process and it was very repeatable and we did we did repeat it quite often for regardless of who the client was or what the project was or what the product was and so being able to see oh there's like this set of practices that you can take and apply regardless of the the problem and you can expect some sort of some sort of outcome and it's almost every time the repeatable that's what's cool about design <laughs> and i'm not saying that's all there is to it right it's it's not like design is not a cookie cutter thing you can't just treat everything the same but there are processes and strategies that you can you know adopt and use and repeat to get expected outcomes yeah so that was really cool and i was there for several years and then worked for a couple different startups before joining consensus and working in consensus and working on the bounties network was my first foray into blockchain and ethereum and that was really fun and yeah working on a small team of really this would have been the wild days what year are we talking about yeah let's see i'm trying to think i'm gonna say 2016 
or 2017, early 2017. I can't remember exactly, but yeah, I'm also having trouble remembering like how it, that correlated to bull bear markets and bull markets, because <laughs> that's like the that's the uh, the measuring stick, right? <laughs> well, that's exactly why I asked because I think that it makes me feel like a boomer. There is so young, both industry and a lot of the the crowd now. But if you were there in 2016, 2017. There's a couple of things to highlight because I got involved at the same time. I bought a yeah. theory, well, Ethereum was at the time $16 US. And I felt like I missed a boat because I was thinking about getting involved when it was four. And I was like, look, I'm not a mathematician, but four to 16, that's a lot of growth. Maybe that was it. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to be around a group of people that were deeper than me into the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. I actually met some of the consensus people down here in Melbourne, submitting with some banks, you know, early cool. exploration. And my friend was like, no, 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 trust me, just buy and forget about it. This is the future. And <laughs> lo and behold, I was able to go around the world twice. And I always had more money than when I started because it was explosive. Like 2017 yeah. was insane. Yes. Yeah. What is not worthy about that? And I always tell people, the problem in blockchain is that we get distracted too easily with money. The problem of the explosive phase is that people get attracted for the wrong reasons. So we had a lot of people join the ecosystem, but very few people joined trying to build yes, something. Yes, so 100%. we have a, a perfect storm of too many participants, worst, too many investors, no one building anything. And the few things being built are taking advantage of this oversupply of investors. It was ridiculous. Yeah. I was at a, it was a Neo conference in San Francisco. I didn't actually go to the conference. I went to the after party. Every single person was an investor. Nobody was building anything. There was a few developers, but everybody had money to deploy. And I was like, there's something wrong with this market. This is just not normal. So yes. yeah, I guess it, I just wanted to highlight that you got involved before this craze and that you were working within Consensus, which was the only organization, one of the few that consistently delivered like real stuff and really advanced ecosystem in a meaningful way. Yeah, yeah. And what attracted me, what, what was most exciting to me about working on a project like Bounties Network was that it was trying to figure out, it was an experiment. It was an experiment to ask, and the purpose of it was just basically to ask a lot of questions. Like using this new, this new currency or this new means of, this new means of storing value as an incentive. How can we, are people interested to work to earn it and in what ways that was the question and, and so it was like and this was before this was before DeFi. this was before nfts so those are more like those there's some utility in and around the sort of these things but there's also oh i was gonna, I was gonna say to an extent there's they're also like games and bounties network was trying to figure out like where's that line between and i think a lot of crypto projects yeah, like where's that line between making this turning this into a game and treating it like a normal a regular means to earn by doing work and by so like giving and taking versus playing and taking i i love it because if i get the framing wrong please feel free to correct me but as i understand sure. it i think it's fascinating because you guys would have been working on a really interesting problem which is very old and it's a problem i guess it's a feature of the open source world which is people contribute as volunteers you can't compel everyone people show up if they choose to and there's a lot of very active contributors that are just not remunerated or, or 
they're recognized, but they may not be making the same monetary income as it would be where they're doing the exact same work at a private company. Right. And I guess that the assumption there would be that there is a gap between how many people can we attract to work under these conditions. It's a smaller subset of very dedicated people working extra hours outside of their main job. Mm -hmm. So crypto starts to look at that. What's it called? The commons I'm talking about? I do know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It, it tries to solve the issue of funding public goods in a way that makes sense for everyone. Participants mm -hmm. contribute in a way that they're happy to. And then people are able to get rewarded even retrospectively in, in mm -hmm. some cases. There would have been endless questions, I'm sure, that you can ask in that space. But it's interesting that was one of the first areas that you guys start to tackle because it makes perfect sense to me that if you're able to crack the equation of how can we create a system of incentives where we can get more developers to build more of the ecosystem, it would ideally create a flywheel of growth where there is recognition and compensation for more developers to join, to build the infrastructure and in true network effects, the bigger the network gets, the more valuable it is for everyone. Yeah, yeah. But would you see where you start to get into the really wild gamification of people getting paid in the currency of the network, which is itself yes. going up in value, in dollar value. Yes. It's not just yeah. more useful for everyone, the more participants there are, but it is more valuable in dollar terms. That's where it gets mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where it gets hard to like, especially when you're dealing with when you're dealing with compensating people with that with those kinds of incentives. It's like, how much do you take into account the volatility? And how does that factor into the experience that that was that's a really that was a really interesting challenge? Yeah. And I think at least if I were to draw on the experience to date, we solved the problem partially. We solved the remuneration problem, and now we've got people with very nice lifestyles who are able to work as freelancers on the projects that they choose to, and mm -hmm. they're able to make a really good living, and now they become investors in other projects that they're able mm -hmm. to assess the quality of. So we've got an ecosystem that is growing, I think, in a healthy yeah, yeah. way. Where we may have not been able to solve the equation yet is that we're still attracting or limited to people that have the passion for the project or the vision. Namely, I think people are, take, people are willing to take the risk of the volatility because mm -hmm. they believe in the project long-term. So accumulating as much of the coin now would be worth it for them long-term. That is not mm -hmm. something that a standard contractor would be willing to do. Yeah. They, want, they want USD yeah. at the end of the month. I'm happy to be really open and transparent. We've implemented a similar model for you know some of the guild funding structure that we have now. There is a budget. The budget is set in near. And there is an understanding that the budget will stay the same amount of near, even as the price goes up. Yeah. So that yeah. guild Makes participants sense. are encouraged to capture the upside. Ironically, the day the budget was set, the price started going down. <laughs> so we set on a digit at $6 and we're now closer to three. But it's interesting because once again, like I've had a few conversations and I always make the distinction between how much of it is broader market sentiment, in which case we just got to stick to it together. And how much of that is us having to do the you know heavy lifting to see the accrual of value in the coin. There's a reason why we're getting you know remunerated. We have to show value. So there's a it's a give and take for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's both for sure. Yeah. Nice. So after consensus, you join the near force. 
Yeah. Yeah. The bounties. So actually you mentioned bounties for like open source developers and whatnot. So it actually turned out that obviously I'm sure you're familiar with Gitcoin and the work that that team and Kevin Iwaki are doing really awesome work on that project. They've since spun out from consensus, but yeah, bounties network and Gitcoin had two co-founders that were, or had two founders that were Talk, often talking about and trying to t- tackle similar problems. The route that Gitcoin ended up going was very focused on developers, and they found like a great deal of success because of just the fact that the developers are the ones that are building all of this. And, and so it just makes sense to incentivize those people to make this thing that we're building bigger and better. And so that, and then everyone benefits when the value from that is realized and captured. Bounties Network was a little bit more experimental in that it was like more white label and more of an experiment trying to see what other kinds of things, <laughs> tasks work, people could be incentivized to to perform. And so it was more of, yeah, it was, it was definitely, and that could be in the form of like, freelance projects. It could be during events, incentivizing people to participate in different events around the ecosystem, incentivizing people to participate in other ways in different projects. So it's really interesting. Ultimately, it wasn't focused enough of a project to capture or realize value from its audience. And so it ended up being one of those projects where there was like, all right, like we've learned a lot, but we're going to move on from this project and focus on other things because there's not necessarily like a clear business model present here. And also, so that's that you guys were too early. Like it was more of a timing risk issue. Potentially. Yeah. <laughs> Cause yeah. I can see that yeah, and... it's hard to have a model where anyone can do anything. Say there's going to be a model for people to host right. meetups outside of the developer crowd would have been hard to hold because there's not much to talk about or not much to showcase. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think it, a lot of it had to do with timing. A lot of it had to do with just the fact that it wasn't a very like intentionally focused project it was very much an experiment and it was like it was cast up it, it, it and i wouldn't even call it a strategy because it wasn't necessarily that it was more out of curiosity than strategy but to cast a wide net to see what is this useful for here's a here's a contract standard of standard bounties and what can it be used for what what kind of mechanisms or what kind of i guess like what where is it appropriate to be used when thinking about like the future of work and compensating people and incentivizing people in this new sort of economy. So it was very experimental, very like wide net cast. But because of that, I think it just didn't target a niche that was specific enough to really take off. Yeah. So at that point, I was contacted by the folks at Near, And I think what really sold me on Near was just their pragmatism. They just placed so much emphasis on the fact that crypto in its current state just has is plagued with like usability issues and it was going to be impossible to bring new people and non-technical people into this environment unless something unless some of that was addressed. 
And of course, Nier has its own way of addressing those problems, which are incredible. But yeah, that was really attractive to me as a designer, just hearing a group of really intelligent big brains, as you like to say, <laughs> being like, yeah. Adopted their language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But being like, we, we realize how the immense potential of this technology, but we also realize how much it sucks to use. And we're on a mission to change that. That was compelling. And so that's what that's why I gravitated towards near and yeah. And I think that still, that stands. I think I get, I'm really excited about everything that is happening on near because it maintains that focus, right? It's, it's too early to have realized like the network effects of one like Ethereum, but the, it's undeniable that the things that it offers as solutions to some of the like usability problems that plague, you know, some of these other chains are just, they're worthy of getting excited about. You have really good sequential timing. So in my brain, <laughs> I'm like trying to time stump everything because there's a couple of things I want to add along the way. But yeah. I love it that you started with very neatly capturing the challenge that we 100% had back in the day. And I think that to some extent we still have today, or at least we're dealing with it. We think we've made some progress, but it would be unwise to think that we've solved it. And it is that developers are building the technology and th there's a very fine line, which we keep going back and forth between once the technology is ready, it gets packaged in a way so that it can be handed over to users, to use, to the next tier of developers, whoever may come next. And in that line, you very quickly realize that the people building the core technology are not necessarily product people, they're not user market research. They just, there's a big gap there to fill between, okay, some people are have the knowledge and have the vision for the core technology, but as it gets packaged to the next tier of builders, there's a lot there. And as you say, it starts with asking questions. We've got a token standard, fantastic. Can the people that design the token standard on, or understand the thousands of contexts in which it, would, it in which it may be used? Probably not. We're going to talk to people in Myanmar who are looking into it, and mm -hmm. they probably give us it's an endless cycle of feedback. So yes. it's interesting to. I guess, reconcile with that. That's my message to all product people and designers to come into the space and not be put off by how raw it seems and thinking that it is a feature of crypto to be super geeky and super technical and very tribal and clicky. I think that's a bug. I think that we need to do more work in making it accessible for people because most people in crypto will tell you we need this talent to fill those gaps. And I agree with you. I think that you are one of a very small group. You found the best place for you with Thinir because it's one of the projects that do put a focus on that usability and product experience. But yeah, it's the beginning of a journey. What I love is it, and, and I guess we had a similar experience because I also fell in love with Thinir even though they didn't hire me, <laughs> is that they must have had a very similar framework to what I love asking which is pretty standard in product, it's not that I'm a genius. What would have to be true for A or B yeah. or C to become a reality? And with crypto, it is glaringly obvious that you yeah. must have decent user experience for mass adoption. And I understand in the early stage that we are in the ecosystem, how other blockchains, they must have done the maths, consciously or unconsciously. If 
Ethereum or whoever, Binance Smart Chain, it doesn't matter who it is. If they have a 100 billion market cap and we take some of their existing developers and their existing users, that's a multi-billion dollar protocol. That is not a failure by any standards, but I don't see that as success because you're not really expanding the pie and you're not really even starting to scratch the surface of what's possible. Like the fact that DeFi is the size that it is and so few people within existing crypto ecosystem use it, it's mind blowing to me. Like this is a multi-trillion dollar industry. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I made a comment earlier about not being interested in (laughs) the sort of some of the projects that sort of just chase, chase the current or chase the, chase the, the hype and DeFi to some extent as a whole is a decent example of that. It's here's an opportunity to realize immense value, to realize a lot of profit, to, to realize a lot of value. And people will go above and beyond to participate because of the upside. And that's fine. But like you're saying, like the I guess the ratio between the size of its success and the number of participants is incredible. And that's why something like NFTs, which have come, which have exploded after the sort of explode, the DeFi explosion, like NFTs were a quick follow thing. That is really interesting because it's similar, but it makes, it, it's a, it makes more sense. It, it, how do I say this? It, it makes more sense to people who don't have the necessary either like educational background or interest or drive to really get into the weeds about all of this DeFi stuff. It's, oh, what is an NFT? It's being able to being able to assign verifiability to a digital asset. Okay. I don't have to know how that works to know to, for it to make sense. And so that's why it's holy shit. Like all of these artists and creators are now like jumping on this train because it's not only can they realize immense, you know, amounts of value and can they benefit from that, but it's like, it makes sense. It's like, I've been doing this all along, but I haven't been recognized (laughs) for, yeah, yeah. I've been doing, I've been creating this creating all along, but my effort and my expertise and my art- artistic capabilities have never been acknowledged in the way that they perhaps deserved. And now they are. And now there's a way to for that to for that to occur. And so it's all of a sudden there's this huge community of creators who are willing to go jump through the hoops of just the baseline level of blockchain bullshit <laughs> to participate because it's exciting and because it, it makes sense and and it's going to be much bigger than in my opinion I, I i absolutely love to tear down products and just think through and trying to understand either what the team was going through as they designed what they've done or what the user is going through and why they choose to engage and obviously try to tease apart the opportunities like where are the gaps for the team why are they doing well what are they not doing the users who are they can we expand that and i find it fascinating because i'm actually a bit more cynical on the nft space i think 
the NFT space, if I were to do analysis of like broader market sentiment, yes, it is 100% correct that it is amazing that we're able to onboard a lot of artists as the creators of content. But the other side is it makes me less optimistic. The other side to me basically says the NFT market is catering to the same small crypto rich crowd, which have too much magic money. So now they're just having 100% flipping digital art. Like digital art is luxury. Yeah. Art in the real world is a luxury. In the digital world is like a mega luxury. (laughs) Yeah. NFTs are one of those things where it's like the... I don't know. My it, again, all of this is just my opinion, but like the NFT bubble that we're seeing in in its current form right now, like surely shall I'm not going to say burst, I'll say fizzle or evolve is probably better. NFTs and their current the current utility of NFTs is so extremely un is so extremely limited and and the potential of NFTs is so extremely unrealized. NFT, the utility of NFTs will evolve to become much more meaningful and useful and creative in how they are used and leveraged in the next couple of years. I I do agree that the use is going to explode and evolve over the next few years. And it makes me excited because as a product person and creative Thinking of the different ways is what gets me excited. Going to a marketplace and buying something now, it's okay, but I'm just like yeah. always thinking through and overthinking. Yeah, yeah. that's like cr- buying an NFT uh, that represents a piece of artwork on a marketplace. Is, that's cool, but what else? And we'll see that. We'll see what, what the what else is very shortly. <laughs> for sure. And for people listening that have never engaged with NFTs or their communities, by the way, NFTs are non-fungible tokens. <laughs> Should have probably clarified that earlier. I can give a personal example of NFTs that I've bought and I guess what they represent to me. And the one like series of NFTs that I've gotten into are the near punks. So I think that it's fascinating how this digital asset can capture a history, a narrative and bind together a community. So that I find fascinating. And it's even interesting because there is composability within communities and narratives. So it all starts with CryptoPunks on Ethereum back in 2016. CryptoPunks become very emblematic within those communities. They become extremely valuable. Even to this day, they're being traded for very large sums of money. And it's interesting that as new communities start to prop up, they all start to develop versions and variations of these punks. And... It was just really interesting creating that shared identity and a sense of belonging. Like, it feels like it was ages ago, but it's actually not that long ago. I bought the current Nearpunk that I use on all my social media display pictures is Nearpunk number 32. And there was something really special about back in the day when the core team and very active community members all start putting those Nearpunks and it becomes like your flag or, or like yeah. a badge of honor or something that you share. Yeah, yeah. It it's, it's, your, it's your mark on the timeline, yeah. on the historical timeline to say, I was here when this happened. I was a part of this movement. In several years' time, I think that would most certainly be the case. And just to be clear, Nearpunks were being sold for 10, 15 near. It's not even like it was prestigious in a money way. It was literally just identifying as a Nearpunk. I guess it'd be the same as going to the Olympics and having the flag of your country. 
it's being part of a group of people that are in a shared mission together. So that is definitely happening in a lot of the NFT ecosystems. And it's fascinating to see how groups online are able to bind themselves to such strong identities. I don't think we've seen anything outside of actual nations or sports teams. But it, what's interesting is then when it evolves to a point of being like so extremely popular that it becomes inaccessible to anyone who would have seek to participate now then it's like there's a there's a friction not or i don't know what the best word is to describe it but it's like there's the original the ogs right who like purchased near puck numbers one through 100 or whatever what you know the who were the original purchasers who that was the intent that was it was like i'm participating in this thing it's a badge it's my stake in the ground to say that i've been here and i was part of this original club but then there's now it, as it explodes it's if you want to participate in it now it's you just have to have a lot of money and how about how valuable is it for you to get into that circle how, how much does it mean to you to be a part of that well, that's up for you to decide and up to your means uh, and that's just really interesting how there's such a difference between those two extremes hundred percent, but those two extremes would be the ongoing state of affairs in the traditional world. Mm -hmm. Anything really from real estate to art to we just have more structured society and it's harder to move around. What I love about crypto is that it never stops. So now we're seeing an endless cycle of creation. We're having a punk worth hundreds of thousands is super valuable. But having the latest NFT, like the Penguins, released two days ago, it's also really valuable because the fascinating right. thing is that because each project tells a story. Yeah. And I'll give you a specific example because I thought it was fascinating. There's one project called Blazed Cats, which was spun overnight in response of some technical failure of another project called Stoned Cats, which allegedly <laughs> was a celebrity money grab and they didn't know anything yeah. about the technology, they didn't have a community. So Blazed Cats becomes an emblem because it captures that being an OG, like being within the crypto community, actually being able to code something and spin it out in 24 hours. Like, once again, there is a narrative to each one of these things. And I think that there will always be a value in being current. I'll give you an example. Let's say hypothetically that there are two concerts in one city on the same night. One is, I don't know, Celine Dion. And the other one is Taylor Swift. Most likely both will be sold out, different audiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe different price points, different experiences. Not discourage anyone from both starting a new project or engaging with a new project. It's always fun. There's always something going on. And even within Near yeah. now, Near Punks, the artist has dropped off a bit. But there's near bits now. The artist is super engaged with the community. Near bits are being created constantly and they're still very affordable. So if you're in the market for you know some near real estate, that may be something you may want to look into. Now, just really briefly to take you back to the deconstruction of DeFi. What I find fascinating is that there are trends in normal tech that I think could give us some insights into this digital world. So for instance, if we look at the very origins of DeFi, something like a Uniswap, I love it that 
if we take it back to physical world, transitioning to digital world, transitioning to crypto world, one of the huge paradigm shifts in the physical to digital world was getting rid of shelf space. Before, if you had a product, there were some real challenges in getting shelf space. And I'm pretty sure that even to this day, convenience stores make a lot of money by selling the location in the shelf space. They don't even make that much money from the actual item being sold. So when you remove that physical constraint of placing your product in front of people, and suddenly the entire internet is your audience and you can reach people in many different ways, that opened up a bunch of business models. And even now direct-to-consumer and drop shipping, like it just keeps innovating, right? I find it interesting that the first tier of DeFi borrows that. So when you create a Uniswap and anyone can list their assets, you're basically telling people not only can you create and deploy whatever you want, it's decentralized, it will run, no one can stop it, anyone can engage with it. But also there is a market for it to be traded, which also, you know, doesn't really require much filtering. Today, there are necessary measures to, you know, whitelist tokens and, and maybe some regulatory compliance, it seems. But back in the day, tier one DeFi, I can see that gap, the feeling. The next level, I'm not sure if it's the next level in, in, in a logical sense, but I guess that the second use case that I see is there's a lot of crypto OGs that say you have um, whatever any amount of coin, 10,000 plus. It's weird that in the traditional banking world, you can show a pay slip, and if you get paid whatever, $60,000 a year, even though you're spending all of that money, they will still give you credit based on that income. So they give you a credit card for 10000 and a car loan for 20000 and It's fractionalized lending. So crypto people were very fast to realize that it was actually very unfair and illogical that people that had $100,000 worth of Bitcoin, an appreciating asset, couldn't access lending because their banks mm, yeah, wouldn't yeah. acknowledge those assets. Yeah. So that layer of lending to me in DeFi becomes super interesting as well. And off it goes, the chain, my most recent example with within the new ecosystem, all of those parallels in other blockchains is Metapool. So Metapool is a liquid staking and same. It tries to reconcile the problem that we need people to stake coins to make the network secure, but the returns of staking may be lower than the returns that you may get elsewhere, you know, yield farming or whatever. So Metapool allows you to stake your coins and get like a receipt, like ST near is a token that represents your stake. And then you can use that as collateral to yep. get you know, liquidity. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things that I think so solve real problems. And yeah. there's a lot of things that are definitely <laughs> odd gamified casinos. And I love to see how both evolve. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. And like they, they, each of those will push and influence the other for sure when there's so much like experimentation going on and there's so much just unknowns around how how can the, the different lego blocks be assembled how many different ways can you use the same lego blocks to to assemble you know something or different things then that's what's really interesting and it doesn't really even matter because most of the stuff that exists whether it's in DeFi or nfts or whatever it, most of it in its current form will not persist will 
evolve and turn into something entirely different. And we may see, and we will see elements of one thing show up in another. And that's just, that's what's so interesting um, about all of it, regardless of whether or not the goals of a particular project or a particular strategy are aligned with one set of, I guess, beliefs or another, or, or one set of intentions or another, it doesn't take away from the fact that there's just so much kind of innovation happening. And that's ultimately really exciting. A hundred percent. And I think that leads us quite nicely to my next point that I wanted to make sure that we bring up. So you've mentioned that you are you know, embedded within the near product and design team seems to be a small team now doing a lot of things on my end to the product and user experience guild we're doing a bunch of things actually so trying to grow the team now to be able to make sure that each of these initiatives has follow through but one of the things that i really wanted to run by you and we can cut it out of the podcast if if it's unrelated to the to the conversation would be as there is a hackathon coming up in a couple of weeks and there are some challenge partners. So one of the idea that I had trying to weave together the thread of what Silicon Craftsman is trying to do in attracting people to the ecosystem, some of the conversations that I've had with Matt Lockyer and Mike Purvis around zero to hero journeys for new people to the ecosystem and also some of the projects that Matt has had that need you know, a UI makeover and just people to take over them altogether. I was thinking about potentially applying as a challenge partner for the hackathon, a Silicon Craftsman, and basically have that one dedicated stream just for product and designers. So at the entry level would be to design this UI remakes of you know these products and services, whatever it may be. But then what I wanted to raise with you specifically was how could we build in as a challenge for designers coming in? Some of the things along the, some of the documents you've shared with me, the design patterns that Mm. uh, we're working on, the the library that was shared in the governance forum with Eric. Yeah, if, if there's any specific tasks that you think we could really tap into that collective audience, especially attract new people. Tasks that could be like a really good introduction for them to the near ecosystem. We can really um, assess their their skills and and their commitment and hopefully keep building from that. So really briefly just outline for me like the the challenge partner kind of dynamic and how that's what how that's working in the context of the hackathon. Yes, I should have done that before. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, see, this is a an, an perfect example of assumed knowledge. I'm aware. You what the challenge was when it was irrational <laughs> because you're very busy working on the wallet. That's just, re- that's all it is. <clears throat> I'm, I'm aware of the, the upcoming hackathon and a few things that are going on around it, but there's also just so much other stuff going on. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I'm definitely holding that against you. This one's on <laughs> the way that the hackathon works. And I must say, I actually quite like it. So there is a ton of money in, in, in prize pool. There's like a million dollars. But the way that they've structured it is there's different categories or verticals. So there's a lot of money for the global prize pool and some general categories. Then there's a large bucket of money for challenge partners. So basically Near is going to put 5,000 USD as towards the prize pool. And the challenge partner can choose to put any extra money or just use those 5,000 USD. 
-hmm. And then the challenge partner gets to structure their own criteria. I can send you both the, the application form and some of the challenge partners that have already applied, but it's very open-ended. You basically define the scope of work that you want people to engage with, and then there is a judging criteria. Gotcha. So for some of the partners, a judging criteria would be a functional prototype, a GitHub submission, everything must be open source. Others are just like really good documentation and material that the community can use. So for our case, once again, I would put a focus on making it accessible for designers. So it'd be all front end stuff and for them to just work on the UI UX. Probably also as part of the judging criteria have really good documentation for them to basically explain what the process was and hopefully once again, bring that part of thinking uh, to the community. Yeah. But if we were to bring in those library components, we could put it as a challenge, would be similar really to the original post in the governance forum or wherever I read it. And then for the judging criteria, we just have to define to what level of completion it needs to be done. I'm not clear right now on how the prize pool gets split. I think you could have even like subcategories for different types of submissions within the challenge. But yeah, certainly I think that having 5,000 USD would be very appealing, very attractive, especially if there are you know freelance designers out there, people that have been dabbling into crypto in and out. I think it would be a really good magnet to increase our talent pool. Yeah, yeah, no, that sounds super interesting. I think the important thing would be to make sure that any work that's related to like defining patterns is happening in the context of existing products. And to that vein, I really like the idea of the sort of product demos and things that you've been doing. Um, and a, a spin on that from that would be really interesting and engaging for, I think, design oriented folks would be like, here's a product and your job is to figure out what it's doing well and what it's not doing well. And then maybe to determine if there are any opportunities to leverage a pattern that makes maybe a little bit more sense in the context of the product for that product, but that also could be extracted and leveraged in other products as a sort of like shared pattern. And maybe the, the criteria would be that it would have to be like specific to the the blockchain that would have to be able to be leveraged by multiple products. So it couldn't necessarily be something that was like extremely bespoke to a specific product and then maybe like meeting certain other criteria, I don't know, the standard design stuff like accessibility and whatever. That would be a lot of fun. Whenever there's like different hackathons, it's sometimes it's tough to get involved when it's engineering focused. So to have some opportunities to for like product and design people to participate. That's always great. And oh yeah, I'm happy to jump in and offer whatever I can if it's judging or whatever. And, and even depending <clears throat> on the scope of the challenge and the, the, the one caveat here is the timeline is a little bit tight. So yeah, we'll do as much as we can within within the, the time frame. But ideally... Once again, just to make sure that the challenge is clear and the guidelines are defined and we could have a participants introductory workshop or something along those lines, like a participants resource yeah. package 
just to make sure that everyone has all the orientation resources. Yeah, ready to yeah. hit the ground running. Maybe even team, the standard hackathon would do it, allow people to team up. But given that we'll be working with a very niche community, and look, who knows, to be honest, I think that designers and product people are in such high demand. There's a very strong chance that once they join for our challenge, we may see some regrouping and they end up going to other teams. But that's fine because I'll be taking those product and design skills to other projects within other verticals. I would also encourage competitions are tough because it's like <laughs> there's always the gray area to be traversed of do you are you paying people for their work or are you paying people who or are you just paying winners? And so I would encourage like doing things and awarding participation. So for example, when I'm thinking about this pattern library thing, it seems like it would be a great exercise to do like an like a like an inventory. So in other words, like here's a task. If you complete it, you get awarded no matter what. It's a smaller reward because everybody else is doing the same thing. But it's still and so in that sense, it's a little bit more fair, but the outcome is tailored for that type of arrangement. So the the outcome or the the I guess the challenge could be something like choose a product in the near ecosystem, identify all of the bespoke, all, all of the patterns that product uses that attempt to interact with or provide some sort of interface on top of the blockchain and identify them and categorize them or whatever. And then maybe like grade them or grade sort of critique and grade and judge the, the participants themselves, like the usability, the effectiveness, the impact on the product, things like that. And the result of that, for say we have 20 participants who have all you know, maybe in teams or individuals have collectively done this massive inventory of like all of these different products across the ecosystem and all of the patterns that they're leveraging. That's like a goldmine of information. And so 100%. as, and, and there's really, and you can, avo- in doing something like that, you can avoid scenarios where people feel like they put in a lot of time and effort and really didn't get anything in return. Anyways, just yeah. an idea. It is fascinating because it goes back down to the gamification, incentive design, a reward structure challenge. Because on the one hand, it being a prize pool, I think really pushes people to try to do their absolute best work to be that first tier submission. But at the same time, what you say is 100% true. Like, it's happened to me. My submission may not be a winning submission, but I put 40 hours of work and it's still valuable work, which will be used by people within the community. So right. th- th- there's a tug war there. And I'm confident that if we think it through, especially once we know how many participants we're going to get, it'd be easier to, to structure it. I, I'm currently running, actually, it ends in a few hours, a cover art competition for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that going. <laughs> oh, it's fun. It's there's waves of voting coming in for different ones. So I don't even know which one's winning at the moment, but we've had some good quality <laughs> submissions. And the way I structured originally was we're going to pay the top three, acknowledging that the top three are probably really good and really popular. And either one of the three could have been used. So we want to make sure that people get something. The rewards themselves are pretty generous. But additionally, after the competition started, looking at the quality of the submissions, and especially the support that some of the artists are getting from their community, I'm thinking of, this is some alpha leak. (laughs) 
I'm thinking of deploying a, a Mint-based store and maybe have a limited release of all the submissions, almost like memorabilia, the inception yeah, of the that's product. a great idea. Yeah, and, and whichever give the profits to with, the artists. Yeah, we'll always remember the submissions and the artists will still get the income of these sales, hopefully, if we're able to, to sell them. Yeah. So I love that the podcast is not just a way to have interesting conversations and get information out there, but it's also like a little playground now of ideas that I'm having to expose the technology. I haven't mm-hmm. had the chance yet because you've all been from within the core ecosystem, but I'm thinking of inviting guests to make a, a proposal at the podcast DAO so they can get some snacks or some drinks to consume during the podcast and reimburse them <laughs> for them. It's very go. symbolic. But we really want people to start to experience with the technology. And it's small things like that. They're fun, but I think they could also really inform the user experience. And yeah. Yeah, I'm always, I'm all for figuring out new and like novel ways of leveraging the tech that isn't like super visionary necessarily by, by in air quotes, but it is, I think novel is the best word. It's like, when you can, when, when something like near is so accessible that it enables you to do like really small scale stuff like that, that's exciting to me. So unprecedented, I'd say. Yes. Yes. It's, it's interesting how there's been a lot of progress. It, it does have to be said, but even deploying some things on Ethereum, cause they're a bit more costly and the experience is a bit more, I, I was playing around with the Moloch DAO and what was the other one called? Yeah, I was playing around with DAOs last year in Ethereum and I didn't get too far. <laughs> and they told me to try an XDAI and yeah, Near definitely captures a very high level of usability, which is something that I feel like I say a lot, but as someone that has been using other blockchains for a long time, I just feel like I, I can't stress it enough. So for me, getting people to experience Near is almost as important, if not more important than learning from it or about it. And I think... So I see the word usability get thrown around a lot, especially like by near people. And I, and I wonder what's, what a better term to use is whether it's usability or accessibility because near isn't necessarily more usable because it's cheaper, for example, it's, but it is more accessible and there's a long way to go <laughs> before I would say a lot of the products, not only in near across blockchain are could be considered as have to have really great usability but i think we are at a point and near is doing some really interesting things that definitely makes it so that they are more accessible so that you can experiment even without the risk this is probably going to be a very weird example but i feel it's like having like premium gluten-free ingredients <laughs> it's okay like it's gluten-free it doesn't taste like cardboard but there is still yeah. a big component on the user yeah, yeah. side of getting their premium, like nice tasting gluten-free stuff and then making <laughs> that into a meal, which is itself yeah. edible. Yeah, yeah. So I feel exactly. like we've done our bit to meet the requirements at the blockchain level and making it not taste like cardboard. But there's yeah. definitely so much work that falls on the, on the application developer or the project yeah. developer to really build it into a fully-fledged application. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's where I'm at with the wallet. And it's a big challenge because there's lots of requests and, and things. We still need to maintain a focus mm-hmm. on offering an experience that is 
that meets everyone's needs, regardless of what kind of activities they're participating in across the ecosystem, and and that it's a simple and easy to to use type of a thing, and hopefully, it will inspire other projects to do the same. It's good. We appreciate your work, sir. It has not gone unnoticed. <laughs> um, thanks so much for your time, Corwin. This has been really interesting. I feel like I learned a lot about you and your and life in general. Hey, it was great chatting to you. Thanks for having me. I, I've enjoyed our both of our conversations that we've had. So anytime you want to chat or pull me into something that you're working on, don't hesitate. Hopefully there'll be a lot more. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm glad that we were finally able to do it.